This podcast is brought to you by the new book, The Heart of the Cross, by Dr. James Boyce and Dr. Philip Riken. Available now in a beautiful hardcover gift edition from PNR Publishing. Visit prpbooks.com and hear more at the conclusion of today's program. This is Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. Before jumping into covenant theology in Eden, it's really critical to start with the unchanging glory of the triune God in the heaven temple that he created in the absolute beginning of Genesis 1-1. Hello, welcome to Theology on the Go. I'm Jonathan Master, joined by my friend James Dolezal. James, it's good to see you today. How are you? Jonathan, I'm thrilled to be here and, uh, and thrilled for our guest, a, a good friend of both of ours, and, um, and really excited to talk about his new book. Agreed. Uh, we're here with Dr. Lane Tipton, who is pastor of Trinity Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Easton, Pennsylvania, and a fellow of biblical and systematic theology at Reform Forum. Just a little shout out to our brothers at Reform Forum. They do great work, great in-depth podcasts, and uh, if, you, if you are enjoying what you hear, uh, on Theology on the Go, Reform Forum is a, is a great, great place to find out more and particularly to hear more from Lane. So, Lane, thanks for joining us today. We want to talk about Foundations of Covenant Theology, your new book, A Biblical Theological Study of Genesis 1 through 3. So thank you for being with us. Oh, thank you, brothers. It's a delight to be here. Hey, and before we dive in, I'm going to add one more thing on the bio line, because Lane is also a visiting professor for us in Bakersfield at Radius Theological Institute. Um as are you, yep. Jonathan. Um, so we're we're uh, looking forward to uh, courses that Lane is is going to be teaching uh, for us. Yeah, I should yeah. have mentioned that because it's a, it's a great honor for me to be on the same uh, list with you and 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 Lane. So what Lane does out there is fantastic. All right, so Lane, I want to start with a question uh, that kind of gets, I think, at one of the big ideas of your book. So it's a biblical theological study of Genesis one through three. So normally, when we think of Genesis one through three, we're jumping right into creation. But you actually zoom out and and start with a theology of heavenly glory. And so you're you're kind of starting us off in heaven. And, and my question for you is, how does that theology of heavenly glory help to frame our understanding of Adam in the Garden of Eden and the creation narrative that we that we see rolled out for us in Genesis 1 and 2? That's a great question. A couple of thoughts come to mind put briefly. Uh, the Bible, before it's about Adam as our federal head, is about the unchanging glory of the triune God. The scriptures from Genesis 1-1 to the end of Revelation 22 is about the disclosure of the unchanging tripersonal glory of our great God. And the point that I make in the book in terms of Genesis 1-1 and related texts is that before God formed Adam from the dust of the ground, before he created Eden as a garden mountain environment for fellowship with Adam, where he would give him the covenant of works, God created heaven as a royal dwelling place, as a holy temple, and he filled it with angels to worship his glory. And in a unique and uh, beautiful way, the Spirit filled that heavenly temple dwelling with the unchanging glory of the Father and the Son as the beatitude of every creature. And that really lays a foundation that, in my assessment, 
has been missing in many of the standard discussions of covenant theology. Before jumping into covenant theology in Eden, it's really critical to start with the unchanging glory of the triune God in the heaven temple that he created in the absolute beginning of Genesis 1-1. Lane, on that, this is interesting, and I'm, I'm going back to the first class I had with you maybe like 18 years ago or something like that. Oh, yeah, yeah, I, I recall it vividly. And you, and you brought up the issue of protology or sort of our, our theology pre-redemptive, before the fall and the revelation of redemption, there's a theology, there's Adam and Eve, made in God's image, and that they're on their way. They're, they're going somewhere. And of course, we say, well, the, you know, there's the view this as well. They're not going anywhere. They're, they're in paradise and keep it if you can. And then, that's, and then if you can keep it, that is the eschaton. Um, right. How do we relate what you're saying about heaven as kind of even like a protology to the protology, a kind of the beginning before the beginning, the thing that frames Eden, um, as a kind of as a kind of backdrop to Eden, but also as an anticipation for Eden. How do we see heaven as beginning and end, uh, if I can put it like that? And where and then where yeah, does the creation narrative in in the Garden of Eden kind of fit inside of that? Yeah, well, let me put it in broad thematic perspective here. Um, when the Spirit fills that heavenly temple in the absolute beginning. Meredith Klein, and I use this term in the book later on, uh, calls that indoxation, the personal indwelling of the glory of the Father and the Son in the heaven temple constitutes that place as a holy dwelling place. In the space of six days, God creates the lower register, the visible heavens and earth. But on the seventh day, the triune God rests from his labors and sanctifies the Sabbath day, the seventh day, as a Sabbath rest, and that resting place is heaven. And so when Adam and Eve are created on the earth in Eden under probation, and Adam is constituted the federal head of the race under the covenant of works, his obedience to God it's not calibrated toward maintenance, but it's calibrated toward advancement. And that advancement is through perfect personal, exact and entire obedience, moving beyond probation and into the resting realm of Sabbath rest, that rest God entered to, into on the seventh day. And Hebrews 4, 4 says he continues to rest from those very good works on the six days of creation. And so this really gives us, I think, uh, a deep appreciation for Sabbath rest and the resting realm where the glory of God is set on display as the beatitude for his creatures beyond probation. And that's something very uniquely and I think distinctively reformed and uh, important to maintain. Briefly on that, since you bring up probation and we didn't say anything about this, so that might sound shock, you know, why were they on probation? Were they in trouble? Were their grades too low? Oh, um, yeah. You know what? So what? So when you say that Adam and Eve were on probation, um, briefly sketch what that means, and what does that mean, especially with respect to the heavenly glory, which is to be their proper rest as well. What's what is the nature of that probation, and how does that relate to covenant, which is a key theme in your book? Sure. Let, let's eliminate the concept of crime altogether. Okay. There was no crime. There was no penalty. Eden is not prison. Uh, rather, we should think of the the concept of probation as a 
particular form of testing for Adam. And here's the test, to put it most basically. Will Adam love and obey and worship God for God's sake alone, under the authority of God, for the glory of God? That's the test. Will he find his satisfaction and delight, listen, in God himself? Westminster Confession 7.1. Will he long for God as his blessedness and reward? That's the test. Will he prioritize God above all things? If he does, then the beauty of covenant, the covenant of works, is that he can advance from a mutable, changeable form of fellowship with God in original righteousness and holiness. And he can be advanced beyond that, confirmed in unchanging righteousness and holiness, unchanging fellowship with God, and his faith and trust in God can give way to sight as the invisible heavens are opened and he enters into that resting realm um, in a new heavens and new earth in perfect, unchanging, and unbreakable fellowship with God beyond the testing in Eden. So what is the mechanism for the test? Um, uh, because scriptures I identify these for us, but, but particularly what is, the, and, and then what is the, te- when he comes to that, you know, faithful moment, the real, you know, sharp point of that test. What is he really being asked to do, particularly vis-a-vis? You say something about his his. It's a test, I think, with regard to heavenly mindedness or earthly mindedness. How does how does even that heavenly glory frame even the nature and the mechanism of the test? Yeah. Uh, well, the the test is that he is not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil upon the pain of death, and so. The, the quintessence of the test is, uh, involves at least two things. Will he live by every word that comes from the mouth of God to the glory of God? Will he think God's thoughts after him in obedience? And will he long to have God himself as his inheritance and reward, as that glory has been set on climactic display in heaven, or will he long to frame wisdom according to his own understanding and according to an alien voice that is speaking in the garden through the serpent? Uh, and, and, and so this really brings into view whether or not Adam is, is going to be first and foremost devoted to the glory of God set on display in heaven and long for that. To pull a line from Augustine, his heart, even in Eden, was going to be restless until it found its perfect rest in God, in heavenly places, in Sabbath rest that consists in endless worship and enjoyment of God. And that really gets to the heart, I think, of what our covenant theology is all about. So, Lane, can you move from that to discussing the revelation of the gospel after the fall of of Adam and Eve? So there's this heavenly orientation, there's this Sabbath rest uh, for which Adam is is created, um, and and yet we know in Genesis 3 what it is that happens. So how does this serve as a helpful backdrop to then the revelation of God's grace after the fall? This will preview what I'm going to do uh, in the class this upcoming week. But to put it very basically, Adam and Eve were expelled from the mountain dwelling of God in the Garden of Eden. Uh, 
A flaming sword was placed guarding its entrance, and the cherubim threatened death for those who would seek to enter that garden paradise, ascend the mountain of God, and attain rest. And so in Genesis 3, beginning 14 and following, God promises that he would send forth a seed from the woman who would do essentially three things. He would destroy the works of the devil. He would bruise his head. He would clothe his people with his own garments, having poured himself out to the point of shedding his own blood, endow them with his image, and he would pass under that flaming sword in death and then ascend the mountain of the Lord and enter into the rest that God had set out to Adam. He would not only undo the sin of Adam by bearing it himself, satisfying the wrath of God, but he would offer the perfect personal and exact and entire obedience that merited that Sabbath rest in heaven, and he himself would become the mountain ascending second and last Adam. And Luke 4, I bring out in the book, Jesus tells the thief on the cross today, having obeyed to the point of death and shedding my blood, you'll be with me in paradise. Hebrews 12, 22, where is Jesus right now? He is seated at the right hand of God atop heavenly Mount Zion, and he confers rest and glory on his church as he brings her through the wilderness. And so it's just a marvelous way, when you understand it this way, to understand the work of Jesus as a mountain ascending mediator, prophet, priest, and king, savior, and Lord. Lane, you're saying this, it reminds me of a, of a favorite little essay by Jay Gresson Machen uh, of mine, although you're going places with it, he didn't. Mountains and why we love them. Uh, and, and I think maybe this is a theme that is somewhat unexpected, that there is a kind of, that there's a mountain theme, so to speak, that precedes Eden uh, in the heavenly Mount Zion, but the Eden itself is a, a mountain dwelling with the Lord, so that there is, would you want to say that there's something in the um, topography of Eden, especially the way like Ezekiel 28 brings it out, something in the very topography itself that is reflective and anticipatory? Yeah, I, I would put it this way, the quick little maxim, there's eschatology in the topography. And what I mean by that is that the mountain of Eden is at, at one and the same time, a shadowing down of the glory of the heavenly archetype, uh, similar to the way the tabernacle was a copy and shadow of heaven. So Eden was the original copy and shadow of heaven. But as such, built into it is a provisionality such that if Adam offers that covenantal obedience, the highest heavens will open and the glory of that heavenly realm will descend and envelop, transform and conform the earthly to the glory of that heavenly realm. And so Eden is both a shadow of and, and, and anticipation of entering that heavenly Sabbath rest into which God entered on the seventh day, so that once you see this, you see the priority of heaven, it really opens up all of the mountains in Scripture, whether it's Mount Eden, Mount Ararat, Mount Moriah, Mount Sinai, Mount Earthly, Mount Zion, and, and it, it ex really explodes the significance of Jesus ascending heavenly Mount Zion as the terminal point of the covenant of grace and the place where he is bringing his church to see his glory with resurrected eyes at the end of this age. Lena, I'm wondering too, and you draw some of this out in the book, 
the implications this then has not only for what we're looking forward to, but for what we're to be doing now and what we're to be taking delight in now in terms of our joining in worshiping the, the triune God revealed to us in the scriptures. How would you articulate that? The, the pilgrim uh, priorities that we have here as we as we look to Christ who's gone before us and, and rest in him as the last Adam, look to heaven, but, but we're here now. Yeah, I, I would say something just very basically along these lines that we are to continue to pursue our cultural uh, concerns, our vocations, our work, whether you're a lawyer, doctor, teacher, a professor, a president of a seminary, whatever it might be, you're to pursue that uh, with joy and devotion to the Lord. Whatever you do, Paul says, 1 Corinthians 10, 31, work at, and Colossians 3, 23, work at it with all your heart as to the Lord and not men. At the same time, that cultural pursuit is a comprehensive laying up of treasures in heaven, Jesus says. Lay up treasures in heaven, not on earth, because in heaven, moth does not corrupt, thieves do not break in and steal. Paul says then, in light of union with Christ, who is ascended into heaven, in Colossians 3, 1 through 2, seek those things above where Christ is, seated at God's right hand. And the Lord's day, each Sunday, is a unique opportunity to set aside that weekly rhythm of work, to come as a wilderness people, as it were, to heavenly Mount Zion, and to rise up in union with Christ and communion with him and worship his glory in heavenly places as the telos of your pilgrimage, the goal to which you are aspiring. You are, Hebrews 4.3, beginning to enter into Sabbath rest by faith in Christ and will be brought to its fullness at the end of the age so that you are a pilgrim people and your home is not this fallen world, this fallen age. It is your home is where Christ is bodily. And, and this volume, I think, is, is designed at least in part to help cultivate a thoroughgoing heavenly-mindedness minded, so that you might be of maximal earthly good in your vocational pursuits and in your worship of the Lord. I want to say amen to that. Just be, before, you, before we wrap it, I want to say amen to that. Yeah, Lane, we do appreciate well, thank all, you, brothers. all the work you're doing, and, and thanks for your willingness to come on and spend a few minutes with us today. Uh, brothers, the privilege and the pleasure is mine. Thank you so much for having me. Keep up the wonderful work and looking forward to seeing you face to face sometime soon. James, I can't imagine what we're going to add to that. Uh, I mean, Lane, Lane ended really just on exactly the right note. But I would say this is a this is a brief summary where he takes you into the Bible immediately. You're going to want an open Bible next to this book. But he he shows that the heavenly undergirding that's probably not the right word but but the the kind of superstructure that our understanding of heaven provides for us in reading the scriptures what i think some readers will be surprised at is just how programmatic genesis 1 to 3 is for yes. the entire narrative of redemption that follows in scripture all the way through to revelation and that you really are going from 
you can you can contemplate creation even to consummation in an anticipatory way uh, in studying these three chapters. And so this is not a uh, this is not a study of Genesis one to three uh, sort of sealed off from the rest of scriptures, but really in in a deep and fruitful conversation with that further revelation uh, consummating in Christ and his ascension into glory for our salvation. But this is what Lane does so well. I and, and the other thing we should say to potential readers, this book is really designed, I think he says it in the intro, um, as a possibly even like a Sunday school curriculum. Every chapter yeah. is followed up with a series of questions, discuss, personal devotion or discussion questions for in a Sunday school classroom. The prose is very straightforward um, as a nice glossary at the end. So you get sort of paragraph descriptions of sort of key themes uh, from the book. So this is this book is, is uh, I love a little rarefied scholarship in my life, um, but this book is not that. This book is deep, abiding biblical themes kind of brought together in, in, a, in a brilliant biblical synthesis, but written in a very strong and easy to read prose uh, to, to bring people in. Well, if you'd like the opportunity to uh, win a copy of this book, Foundations of Covenant Theology, a Biblical Theological Study of Genesis 1 through 3 by Lane Tipton, you can go to placefortruth.org, click on the Theology on the Go link, and there will be a place there for you to enter your name and information. Also, as we said, it's an accessible book. It's a short book. Uh, it is it is an inexpensive book published by our friends at Reformed Forum, and we would commend it to our listeners uh, as always, we're, we're grateful for you as our listeners. If you have the uh, means to donate to the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, you can do that at AllianceNet.org or PlaceForTruth.org. Also, if you'd like to send us questions, we're always glad to hear from you. And uh, if, you, if you're able to share this podcast with others, we appreciate that. Give us a review on Apple Podcasts. That helps get the word out as well. And as always, thank you for listening to Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. Discover the power of the gospel in the new book, The Heart of the Cross, from PNR Publishing. In 21 brief readings, pastor theologians James Montgomery Boyce and Philip Graham Ryken expound the Bible's teaching about the cross, from Jesus' words during the crucifixion to his words after the resurrection, to the vital teaching on the cross and the rest of the New Testament. The authors meet the troubled, skeptical, and restless in these pages, and with insights both simple and profound, draw each one of us to Christ. This beautiful hardcover gift book is available now wherever Christian books are sold. PNR Publishing, Reformed Theology for Real Life. Visit prpbooks.com to learn more.